You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. David McDonald to introduce today's speaker. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, I'm delighted to be able to introduce uh, Scott Levy to everybody. Uh, as Jennifer said, he's an alumnus of our PhD program. Uh, a lot of his advice uh, and mentorial work came from my colleague Andre Fink, uh, uh, as well as uh, well, Scott was here. He graduated in 2000 at a very interesting time in the. Uh, in the career of our department because for about 15 years, we were one of the most powerful producers of a, a distinctive approach to the history of the region of Central Asia in the English-speaking world. Most, uh, most departments looked at Central Asia as a, creature, as a peripheral, colonial periphery really, uh, seen through the eyes of St. Petersburg and Moscow, or if you were on the other end, uh, through the eyes of Beijing and the, and the Chinese Empire. And uh, uh, beginning with the uh, presence on campus of uh, I suppose the late Kamal Karpat, but uh, also Vincent Fournier, who's now at the uh, Maison des Hautes Études in Paris. Uh, there, there came several echelons of uh, scholars and uh, especially graduate students who started looking at Central Asia's own realm uh, as, a, a, as its own site on a broader convection belt linking uh, East and South Asia to, uh, to Western or inner Western Eurasia and beyond that to Europe and the Black Sea Basin. And that entailed taking the perspective of the indigenes rather than looking at them through the other's eyes and taking their experience as a guide in its own right, uh, looking at it, I'd say, from inside out. And Scott is one of a remarkable pleiad uh, that came out of, uh, came out of uh, Wisconsin in those years. Uh, I'd include it Dee Prowlin, who's up at Carleton College, uh, uh, my own former student, uh, the, uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, Pete, I was going to say Pete Rotier, who's not in the academy anymore, but just an intellectual historian of uh, Kazakhstan whose work is broadly cited in even most recent stuff by uh, Ian Campbell and others. Uh, Danielle Ross, who's at Utah State, who looks at, uh, who looks at the, the Volga Basin, the Muslim communities in the Volga Basin, and traces back along the Naqshbandi lines into Central Asia and uh, into Afghanistan. And these, and, and with them, Scott is only the most visible and, uh, and accomplished of, uh, of that group for Playad. We, we even have one still uh, doing with Eddie Ken, who is looking at the Naqshbandi networks uh, from Istanbul all the way out to uh, Central Asian uh, British India. So, and we're saying goodbye to another uh, uh, student interested in Central Asia, who's Nick Say, who will be joining uh, Professor Levy at Ohio State uh, <laughs> for doctoral study. Mind you, Professor Levy will find himself very busy. He just took over last year as chair of the Department of History at uh, Ohio State University, an intimate little department of 64-odd faculty. Um, and it'll put a, a brief administrative hiatus into a career that's been marked by a, a very, uh, very impressive productivity. And it's interesting, you look at that uh, today, he's going to, I won't bore you with reading a title you can read for yourself, but uh, this piece represents a companion piece to another book that's going to be appearing forthwith on Bukhara during the same period. And uh, Scott has followed the, uh, the trajectory 
of the population that formed the focus of his dissertation, which is uh, uh, the Indian diaspora along the trade routes, uh, Volga-based and uh, Transoxiana-based uh, 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 from South Asia through Central Asia into, uh, into Europe. And you looked at these colonies of Indian merchants and, uh, and they're not very gradual indigenization into the host population. They tend to remain quite distinct, although some did indi indigenize. And Scott himself is indigenized in Central Asia following this diaspora into, uh, more and more into the heart of Central Asia, which has increasingly become the focus of his research, as we will hear today in uh, his talk. Again, I won't bore you with the title. He can say it for himself. <laughs> but I want you to join me in uh, welcoming Scott on his return to Madison. Approach towards Central Asian history that David is discussing. Uh, you're going to see that in pretty high definition over the next 45 minutes or so, exactly what it is that we're, we're talking about here. So I'd really very much like to thank everybody. Uh, Jennifer, um, Kelly, and Maxat for making all of the arrangements for uh, my visit. Uh, David and Andre, um, two, two now friends who come straight from my candidacy exams back you know, um, more than a couple decades ago. <laughs> Um, so, uh, uh, again, I thank you all. I understand you just took your exams, your own exams, right? You've just finished the, the final exams for your language programs over the summer. So congratulations to all of you. Um, and I wish you all the best of luck as you move forward into so many different ventures. Well, let me explain the title, uh, The Rise and Fall of Kokand. This is the Khanate of Kokand from 1709 to 1876. Uh, 1709 is the earliest rise of the dynasty that gave that eventually gave rise to this particular state, the Khanate of Kokand. It took a full 90 years before they achieved that goal. It's the very end of the, the 18th century, 1799, is when we can actually start talking about the Khanate, the actual state. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that over the next uh, 40 to 45 minutes or so. The book, um, in a, uh, a bout of real uncharacteristic modesty, I completely forgot to bring a copy of my own book. This is, you know, what you'd normally do is like, you know, show a picture and try and get a couple, you know, quarters and maybe a buck fifty in royalties by enticing people to, to buy that book. But I uh, completely forgot to bring it. But uh, the book appeared in um, the University of Pittsburgh Press uh, series, um, Central Eurasia in Context. Uh, it's Doug Northrup series. Doug's a colleague over at Michigan. And it's the in-context part that I was really enthusiastic about. This is what I'm trying to do, is look at Central Asia and really place it in a particular context. So let's begin. Uh, let me ask you guys a question um, in the audience here. Who has been to the Fargana Valley? A couple of travelers over here. Not so a, a small number of us. The rest of us, I'm going to introduce the Fargana Valley a little bit. Uh, and I've got a few maps for us here. So if we're looking at this particular map, um, you know, where is the Fargana Valley? Uh, it's right there, right? <laughs> I'm gonna do that again because it actually took me a, a really long time to figure out how to do that, and so I wanna <laughs> that we've got. That's, so we're looking really in the heart of, of, of Central Asia. Uh, it is, um, uh, if we look at it politically, it's this little finger of Uzbekistan that points down into Kyrgyzstan, and in fact, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan are also both, uh, they are, the Fargana Valley includes areas that are politically in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. The majority of it is, is in Uzbekistan. Uh, but the story by which the Kyrgyz and the Tajiks became a part of the, the Khan of Kokan, that's a critical part of the, the narrative history that we're, we're, we're talking about here. 
Uh, if you look at it geographically, now we've got a sense. You've got um, uh, the Sirdaria River come uh, emanating out of the, the Fargana Valley, some of the major cities that we're looking at here. Um, and this is a map that's actually particularly helpful. So um, when I pull from the, you know, the nations. Um, the valley is an absolutely beautiful little corner of the world, and those of few of us who've been there will, will affirm that, I'm sure. Um, it is, as I said, mostly in southeastern Uzbekistan. Uh, it's surrounded by the Tian Shan Mountains to the north and east, and the Alai Pamir to the south and east. It's almond-shaped, appropriately so, as almonds are commonly grown in the Fergana Valley. Uh, it's about 8,500 square miles total, so not terribly large. Uh, it's an area that is slightly smaller than New Jersey. Let's see Jersey up here. Um, it is also a garden state, like New Jersey, um, uh, though um, uh, more fruit, uh, less medical waste. <laughs> though in defense of New Jersey, you're going to find better pizza and better cheesesteaks over, over there. Um, today it's home to approximately 14 million people total. Uh, that's within Uzbekistan and also Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Uh, five of the ten largest cities in Uzbekistan are in the Fargana Valley. Aside from Tashkent, Vilayatı, uh, it's the most densely populated area of Central Asia. Uh, it's also in um, relatively recent years seen a series of ethnic pogroms, uh, some very interesting religious movements. Uh, the 2005 Andijan massacre, of course, uh, so it has appeared in the news over and over again. Uh, the Fargana Valley has received a number of very famous visitors, aside from myself. Uh, <laughs> coming from the west, you've got Alexander the Great, a nod to Greece, right, Macedonia. Um, Alexander the Great uh, established Alexandria Eskata uh, at or near Khojand in the fourth century before the Common Era. And I love this map, uh, which I also stole from the internet. Uh, this little caldic right up here at the top, that's Fargana. Right? So it's an important enough uh, uh, territory for Alexander that they had to actually extend the map up just a little bit for him. Coming from the east, you have Zheng Qian, the explorer and uh, envoy of the Han Emperor Wu Di, uh, who made his way westward in the second century BC. That's a great story. We don't have time to get into it uh, today. but. Um, for Zheng Qian, uh, one of the great explorers of antiquity, Fergana was known as Dayuan, or on this map, Taiyuan, right here. And uh, for him, uh, he, it was home O of the legendary blood-sweating horses that here the images of the Fergana Valley, um, some of which I actually did take. <laughs> so um, uh, the, the blood-sweating heavenly horses of Fergana that sparked the imagination of Chinese authors in antiquity and stories of the Silk Road uh, in, in later years. Uh, he identified it as home to a few hundred thousand people. Uh, he said it was, there were 70 urban settlements in the Fargana Valley at the time, most of which were very small. The Fargana Valley's most famous residents, uh, without a doubt, Zahiruddin Muhammad Babur. Babur, the founder of the, uh, the Timurid ruler and founder of the Mughal Empire in 1526. Babur was born in the valley uh, in, um, or just outside of the city of Andijan, and he ruled it, he was, so he was born in 1483, he ruled it from the age of 11, uh, 1494. And his Fergana Valley, here I've got another map for you, 
that's to do with the militia right there. Always with the militia. <laughs> they, these guys were so dumbfounded that this American guy could speak <laughs> Uzbek that they actually <laughs> let me take a picture with them. Um, I wanted to do one like they were going to arrest me, but they wouldn't do that. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Babur's Fargana Valley. Um, he famously, in, in the Babur Nama, recalls it as a wilderness paradise. Um, not really, his description's not really hugely different from that of Zheng Qian. Um, he identifies seven principal cities, which we have on this map. Andijan was the largest, along with Aksi and Kashan in the north, Osh to the east, um, Margilan, Isfara, and Hojan to the west at the opening of the valley. Namangan, cities like this, uh, which today is the second largest city in Uzbekistan, w it existed at that time, but it was a tiny village. The city of Khokand, which becomes the capital of the Khanate of Khokand, wasn't even established until 1740 with Nagris. Babur gushes about the abundant wilderness for hunting deer, pheasant, and hare, and other game. Uh, and he identifies it as, rightfully so, I think, the place where the, you can find the world's best melons. This is a shot I took from the Fargana Valley a couple years ago. Grapes, pears, excellent peaches, another melon. You know, <laughs> for those of you who haven't had a chance to travel yet, you know, you, people say, yeah, I'm sure, yeah, the fruit's gonna be good in Central Asia, but it can't really be that good. But no, it, it really truly is. Um, these, lots of water, these really long, intense summers, uh, it's, it's, it really is that wonderful. It's, it's, uh, if you put your head close, you could just smell them. Oh, man, they are, uh, they are fantastic. So, uh, for Babur, he says, the agriculture was um, uh, pretty modest. There was some agriculture near the rivers. Um, just about enough to support an army of three to 4,000 troops, okay? That's Babur. If we go four centuries forward, so that's Babur, end of the 15th century. Now we go to the end of the 19th century. We're in 1873. Uh, so this is three years before the um, uh, Khanate of Khokhand was extinguished. Uh, so you have a dramatically different portrait of the valley. And here the, the traveler that we're going to look to this time is actually an American, an American diplomat, uh, Eugene Schuyler, who is, not making this up, a descendant, I think a great-great-grandnephew of none other than the Schuyler sisters from Hamilton. If those of you, if you haven't had a chance, I, I, I highly recommend it. Total family relationship. So Eugene Schuyler, the diplomat, um, shows up and he's still in his, in his very detailed account of the Fargana Valley in 1873. He says, yeah, still great fruit, but now we have many more cities. We have larger cities. Interesting changes in the demographics of the valley. Different people, people who weren't there in the, in the 15th century are now there. And he highlights uh, in, in high detail uh, the extensive built environment, uh, paying a special attention to the irrigation networks, networks of irrigation agriculture in the Fargana Valley. And we find that the valley at this point in time is home to about 1.5 million people. So it's about twice the population that it was during the time of Babur. So these are some observations. My own entrance into this, as, as David was saying during the introduction, came when I was working on my, what was then my, my dissertation, which I'm sure Andre still 25 years later has a headache from reading so many times. Thanks again for that. Um, when I was working on this Indian diaspora in Central Asia, 
there we go. Here's a, a map of the Indian network. Here's uh, an Indian mer uh, uh, caravanserai in Bukhara. And here's a map of uh, the in places where I could identify Indian merchant communities all the way up to Moscow and Petersburg. So I was looking at this Indian merchant network emanating out of India northward. Um, it emerged in the middle of the 16th century. It flourished in the 17th century, and it persisted even to the end of the 19th century. Uh, I was studying the movement of people, merchandise, investment capital, all sorts of things. That's another a completely different talk. Uh, I, I do know in Central Asia, they operated, um, they were heavily involved in rural credit, financing farming populations, making loans to farmers, and then uh, purchasing the, the crops. Um, so I worked to find these Indians wherever I possibly could. I looked all over the place and tried to find out just how extensive this network was. Uh, I found them in Afghanistan, Central Asia, Iran, up the Caucasus, there's a community, long-lasting community in Astrakhan, and then up the Volga, as I said, as far as Moscow and Petersburg and Arkhangelsk and trying to go beyond that. In um, the 17th century, I was able to find them all over the Bukharan Khanate, but I couldn't find, none of the references that I could find in the 17th century would place them in the Fargana Valley. I was looking at every source that I could get my hands on trying to find references to India, talking to all of the various historians and the uh, Institute Tarafi in Uzbekistan and trying to figure out where these guys were, nothing in the Fargana Valley. I went to the State Historical Archive um, and uh, managed to find references in the Russian colonial records that placed them, they were by that point in time, so here we are in the 1870s, 1880s, they're as ubiquitous in the Fargana Valley as they are everywhere else. So I'm thinking of all of this, and this prompts me to ask a number of questions. What led the Indians to extend their interest in the Fargana Valley? Why weren't they there in the 17th century, but they were in the 19th? What changed over the centuries between Babur, the account that we've got from Babur, right, wilderness wonderland, and Schuyler, irrigation networks all over the place? The most obvious answer is, the rise and fall of Khokan, comma, 1709 to 1876, right? Uh, I know, great imagination there. Um, but it's, it's direct and, and tells us the reader what the book's gonna be about. So more generally, more generally, I'm interested as I was developing this project, I became more interested in questions like what shaped Central Asia's historical trajectory in the 16th to 19th centuries. Was this really remote region we saw the, you know, how remote it is in the heart of Asia. Was it connected to globalizing processes in the early modern world? Or was it isolated? If it was connected, how did those connections influence local events? How were they manifest at the local level? Um, if, they, if it was connected, did Central Asian peoples have the ability to influence their much larger and more powerful neighbors on the Eurasian periphery? We gotta, we pause. Those of us working on Central Asia, this is the center. They're all peripheral, <laughs> right? We get to do that in this room. You don't get to do that very often, but in this room we get to do that. <laughs> all right, so um, as a field, Central Asian historians have made some significant headway over the last couple of decades. Um, from my own perspective, we've, we've made quite a bit of progress moving beyond the antiquated notions that were still dominant in the 1990s when I was writing that Indian, Indian diaspora book. Um, that Europeans, when they Europeans arrived in the Indian Ocean, they usurped the Silk Road trade and that all came to an end. We're moving beyond that. That's still kind of, there are some who cling to, to these ideas. But by and large, ser serious scholarship has moved beyond that. 
Um, there's some great work that's coming out of the field, but I do also think we have a, a very long way to go, and that's especially so, so for those of us working in the early modern period, this period between Tamerlane and the Timurids and then the Russian colonial period. My own efforts have focused on exploring Central Asian connectivity in this period. Um, I do it by work focused manuscript-based research on the one hand, right? those philological techniques, the reasons why some of you are here working on you know, intensive language study, to be able to read those manuscripts. But at the same time as I do that, I want to connect Central Asian history to current themes that are unfolding on in, in these other fields. And this goes to what David McDonald was saying. Um, taking Central Asia, analyzing as its, it, as its own subject of study, but connecting it to the most current research that's unfolding in Russian history, in Qing or Ming Qing history, um, in Mughal and post-Mughal South Asian history, uh, taking ideas from Ottoman history and applying those to Central Asia. That's been a methodology that, I, that I've been applying. And I credit Andre uh, as my grad advisor for teaching me, helping me to think this way and recognizing the benefits that one can get uh, from approaching a new area of study and then trying that doing one's best to cross-fertilize new ideas coming out of different fields and applying them as best as possible. So in 2002, when some of you were probably still in diapers, <laughs> if I look around, um, uh, I was finishing my work. That Actually, that Indian diaspora book was published in 2002. And as that was coming out, I started to pivot to my work on Khokan, the Khanate of Khokan. So a new research project, all right? dissertation is behind me, I'm ready to start book number two, which actually came out as book number five. Uh, things got in the way. Uh, first, I started gathering the principal published books. There isn't a whole lot on the Khanate of Khokan. Um, there's the work by the old Orientalists. Nalivkin's the most famous. Uh, Kratkaya Historia Khokanska Vakhanska came out in 1886. Um, the next real survey of Khokan's history came out, I think, um, 2006 was Bakhtiar Babachanov's book. So 1886 to 2006, not much. All right. <laughs> um, I looked at the Central Asian scholarship. So Babachanov's book was helpful in, in, in a number of ways. Timur Baisembiev uh, out of Almaty was by far, um, he passed away a couple of years ago, he was by far the greatest scholar working in the field. Very, very focused research but an extraordinary keen mind and put together um, the Kokanskaya Historiographia, uh, historiography of Kokan, 1,263 pages, all on Kokandi historiography. It's phenomenal. It's massive, right? Uh, in the Western literature, there's very, very little. Um, a few articles and a few chapters in the West, mostly coming from the perspective of Qing history. Um, not really even very little coming out of Russian history is interested in, in, in Kokan. Uh, in, in, in that context. Much more important for me was that I began a series of trips to Uzbekistan. Um, I began working through the Kokan Chronicles myself. So when the Russians took the capital in 1876, most of the archives were destroyed. There's very little in terms of archival records for Kokan. But the literature about Kokan is immense. Uh, I chose seven chronicles work with, um, more than a thousand folios. I chose chronicles that would give different insights, different perspectives, conflicting perspectives, 
um, contrasting viewpoints. You know, everybody, every author has biases. I wanted biases that were different, so I could help, it helped me triangulate and read between the lines. So I chose very carefully and worked for a long time with those chronicles. My initial aim in this book was to write the first English language history of the Haunted of Pocan. <laughs> I won. <laughs> it, was, um, it wasn't really a race. There wasn't anybody else who was running. It was, it was just me, but, uh, but I, I got that. I can claim that. Um, but I wanted this to stand as a counterpoint to the standard Bukhara-centric narrative that dominates Central Asian history. Bukhara, you know, we have the Bukharan Hanate, and this is a dominant presence in the field. And I wanted something that's going to challenge that a little bit, give us a different way of thinking about Central Asia, uh, present a, a, a new perspective on the 18th and 19th centuries um, and, and how those centuries manifest in the region. And I thought that if I would combine the scholarship in Uzbek and Russian with my work in the manuscripts, that's going to get me pretty far. Um, uh, well, I had, I had just finished my first book, right? And I was so, so arrogant. I, was, uh, I could finish this book in four or five years, no problem. Well, 15 years later, I did finish it. Um, as I said, there were three other books that came out in the meanwhile, so it wasn't like I was sitting on my hands. Changed jobs a couple of times, got married, two kids, three houses, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> you know, three other books, so I was busy, but it did take some time. Um, but I also started thinking differently about the project. So let me first let me tell you just a little about the arc of the history of Pocan, assuming that you guys haven't all read the book and that you're, you're not intimately familiar. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just you know, the general, in the most general terms. The book traces the history of um, uh, the Khan el Khokhan back to 1709 and explains how it moved forward, how it was established and moved forward over the first half of the 18th century. So we start with Shah Rukh B. Shah Rukh um, there we go, uh, was a um, uh, noble of the Uzbek Ming tribe, the Uzbek Ming. No relation to the Chinese Ming here, of course, you guys all know, means 1,000, not brilliant as it does in Chinese, right? That's one of the Uzbek tribes. Um, and Shah Rukh managed to take authority, wrench authority really, from a group of theoretic, uh, theocratic sorry, Sufis, the Chadak Khoza. Here's the city of Chadak right now. And this is the mausoleum of the Khozas uh, right there. Um, and uh, these Khojas had political aspirations. They wanted to establish in the Fargana Valley what the Khojas in Kashgar, just a little farther to the east, had been what they had achieved. They wanted this theocratic Sufi state in the Fargana Valley. And Shah Rukh and the Uz his Uzbek followers weren't going to have any of it. Uh, so they arranged a, um, a marriage. Uh, there was going to be a choice, a party. And um, uh, the uh, Ming were guests of the, the Khojas. And um, there was, uh, the, the wedding ended in a complete and total massacre. Uh, something that invites comparisons with the Red Wedding on, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's that bad. Um, so, I mean, I, give, I describe it in that. Now, let me also say, I've been to Uzbekistan many times, and Uzbek hospitality is wonderful. I would never <laughs> see anything like this happen. Uh, but um, this particular case, oh my gosh, it's a, it's a great story. Uh, all of the hosts are killed in their beds, and know, blood's all over, and the, uh, yeah, but the, the Uzbek Ming emerge dominant. 
So Shah Rukh's successors managed to um, uh, take over in the central and western parts of the capital, sorry, the valley, and then they establish a new capital, the city of Kokan in the year 1740. They're doing this at the exact same time that Bukhara is collapsing. Right? So when we talk about a new perspective, the narrative of Bukharan history is one of decline in the first half of the 18th century. Here, we have a new state taking shape. So I just wanted to take a moment to highlight that. Over the second half of the 18th century, the study analyzes the ways that the Uzbek Ming managed to extend their control over the entire Fargan Valley. By the time we reach 1799, the full valley is under control of the Shahrukh dynasty. The ruler from 1770 to 1799 is Narbuta Bey. And he goes from having control over just a small part to a really extensive control over the valley. And then we have a period of about four decades of this wonderful efflorescence. We have expansion, extent, the, the uh, Uzbek Ming, the, now we can talk about the Khanid of Kokan, extending its power southward into the Pamirs, all the way down to the Wakhan Corridor, and northward, deep, deep into Kazakhstan. Uh, they established Akhmasjid, um, uh, Kizloda today in um, 1820. And as this is happening, we see uh, a brief but really interesting Islamic renaissance unfold in the Fargana Valley as well. Great literature, art, beautiful. Then we get a crisis of legitimacy under the weight <coughs> of um, a ruler named Madali Khan. Uh, totally debaucherous stories. I mean, really makes for some fun reading. Uh, again, should have brought the, brought the book to, to, to boost some sales. But um, this culminates with a horrific Bukharan invasion of 1842. Uh, Madali Khan and his mother, Nadira, the, the poetess queen, are both killed. Uh, and then we're left with ineffective leaders incapable of defending the, the valley against Russian advances. Akhmasjid is taken in 1853, 12 years later. 1855, Tashkent falls. Khokhand is defeated again in 1868, and then 1876, completely extinguished. So all of that's present. It's all in, the, in the, the book. And to be honest, if that's all I wanted to do was describe that, I could have done that in four or five years. Um, uh, but as the project matured, I developed a more ambitious vision for what I could do with it. I wanted to focus on Khokhand, but I wanted to do so using a connected histories methodology. Um, oh, here I've got... Uh, this is the Okumbush's legend, is a, a mythological legend about the, the birth of Shah Rukh that actually trace, traces his ancestry back, not to the Uzbeks, but to Babur, the Timurids, which those of you who are familiar with history, this shouldn't happen, right? But it's very interesting. And then um, Nadira uh, and her, her, her tomb, the, the Shah Rukhid, um, Zakhmi Shahan, the, the mausoleum uh, graveyard in, in uh, Khokhand. Connected histories. Uh, this is a method that argues that a sensitivity to trans-regional connections adds value to history. Um, it highlights a weakness that some have found in the area studies model of the, especially the late 20th century. Uh, the idea of the model is that if you read deeply within a particular area, um, uh, you'll become a master of it, but it doesn't require extending beyond that region. So to be sure, I mean, extracting knowledge from manuscript sources takes a great amount of skill and a great amount of time but I argue that it can also leave historians blind to larger processes. And I argue that's been a problem, especially in the Central Asia field. 
Um, I think that historians could even be left unable to identify the causal factors that are propelling their own research questions. So we need to look a little more broadly than that. Um, connected histories isn't new. Uh, Sanjay Subramaniam has been advocating for that for some 20 years. Let me be very clear and also say that Sanjay takes credit for that, but he follows uh, Joseph Fletcher, who was advocating for what he called integrated history, which is essentially in more ways than not the same thing. Back in the early 1980s, I read that in his grad seminar. And Nick, you're gonna read that in my grad seminar. <laughs> it's a great study. Um, so what, what is new is that a connected histories model has never been applied to Central Asia in this period. So a couple of quick points. One is that for early modern Central Asia, um, there are a number in the field who still find, who, who still advocate or argue that uh, connected histories methodologies are relevant. Um, so the, my book's subtitle, uh, Central Asia in the Global Age, is um, it's deliberately meant to be provocative. Right? I'm arguing, I'm advocating for this methodology in that period. And to be sure, I mean, if you think globalization in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, you think globalization, you think the, the maritime arena, you think oceanic trade routes, right? You don't think Central Asia. Central Asia is possibly the last place that you would look to find traces of globalization. And to me, that's precisely what makes it such a perfect case study. Kokand is no Bombay, and it's no Macau, and by an order of magnitude, right? I'm not saying it is. But it also was not immune to the changes of the early modern world. Kokand then is an excellent test case to see how globalization shaped the imperial world, and the whole world, not just those hot spots. What does globalization look like in the borderlands? That's the question that I carried with me as I was working through this book. Uh, some have argued that the global turn, um, uh, have, have, I'm sorry, some have critiqued the global turn, highlighting it as um, uh, overly generalized and synthetic. Uh, Francesca Trivolato is one. She argues that micro history still has much to contribute to global history, uh, that it can instill a healthy dose of critical self-reflexivity into global history. And I take that cautionary note very seriously, I agree. I argue that connected histories can add a richness and a context to the local. It can provide critical insights that are not available by relying on the manuscripts alone. So my method then is to focus on the local and always to keep one eye on the global. And so what I wanna do now with, with you guys in the time that we have remaining is to highlight a few ways that these connections that I'm talking about shaped the rise efflorescence and uh, the fall of Kokand. So first is um, the uh, Bukharan crisis of the 18th century, right? This epic crisis of the, the Bukharan Khanate suffered uh, in the first half of the 18th century. There is no shortage of literature that describes this crisis. Um, we know it well. Deurbanization in certain cities, Samarkand is the most notable example. Um, invasions from the steppe, right? Kazakh occupations, the, the barefooted flight. Uh, the debasement of silver coinage, we can study that as well. Um, migration out of the region, or elsewhere in the region as the case may be. Rebellions and then revolution. This culminates with the, Pers the Persian invasions of 1737 and 1740, 
Um, and then the Bukharan Khan and his son are killed in 1747. That means horrible, right? Um, it's an important question. Uh, what causes this, this Bukharan crisis? And that is, um, and that's the, the, the very question that I explore in my next book, uh, which as David was saying is in press and due out in the, in the spring in the same series from University of Pittsburgh Press that this one came out in. The problem I have is the tendency that colleagues in the field have had to take this Bukharan crisis, right, focusing on the Bukharan manuscripts that describe that crisis, and then extend it outward across the entire region. We focus, what are we reading? Which manuscripts are we reading? Who are the authors of these manuscripts? What are their agendas? Right, so we take that evidence, which is very real, and we use that as a stereotype for the entire region. And then we go farther and we take, it's not just the first half of the 18th century, it's the full early modern period. And this is what defines early modern Central Asia, crisis and decline. If we contrast the Fargana Valley with the Bukharan experience, we see that Bukhara's crisis worked to Khan's advantage, as I do in detail in the book. Where Bukharan authority had withdrawn, power became localized. It's not, I'm not the only one who's done some recent work on this. Uh, James Pickett, if that name is familiar, now coincidentally at the University of Pittsburgh, Department of History, uh, did a great study, came out in the American Historical Review on the city of Shakir Sabz, which is always seen from the Bukharan perspective as a city in rebellion. If you look at the Bukharan sources, those rebel Kenegas, another tribe, Uzbek tribe in, in, in Shakir Sabz. The fact of the matter is, if you look at the full duration of Shakir Sabz from, you know, over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, Bukhara was able to exert authority over that city for just a couple of years. That's the exception. So, you know, if you look at different sources, we get a different perspective. The group that I'm talking about, uh, the Uzbek Ming, well, point being, I want to contrast the, uh, the Fergana Valley with, with the Bukharan experience. What we see is a, class, a, case of, a classic case of decentralization. Um, and now I look to my colleague, Jane Hathaway, uh, an Ottoman historian, uh, who um, in some of her earlier work analyzed the uh, literature on Ottoman decline, Ottoman declinist literature uh, coming out of the, the 1980s and 90s, and then how Ottoman historians started looking into the provinces and the whole field started to change as a product. So I want to apply some of those techniques um, and ways of thinking as we, we, we look at Central Asia. We see that the Uzbek Ming built a new locus of power in the Fargana Valley, again established the, the capital in 1740 and established a dynasty that would rule until 1876. The next stage begins in 1755 with um, the uh, Qing campaigns westward and the conquest of what we now call Xinjiang. Um, the Qianlong Emperor determined to end the Jungar threat, the Jungar Mongols uh, nomadic threat off to, off to his west uh, with a massive campaign. And Peter Perdue has written a, a very detailed and excellent study of, of, of this. Others have worked on it as well, but Perdue's is the um, that's the source to go to. Uh, the um, Qing forces first defeated the Jungar. Uh, then in, um, uh, so we see the, the campaigns that they ran going westward as they made their way uh, into what, again, what is now Xinjiang. Not just defeated them, extinguished the Jungar as a political entity. 
Um, here we have an interesting uh, map of the Jungar surrender in 1755. When they finished, this is the map I want to get to, when they finished, uh, they moved southward into the area that we call Altashaher, the Six Cities region. This is Kashgaria in some literature. Um, again, I mean, I've, to use contemporary terms, this is Xinjiang. You've got northern Xinjiang, which was steppe territory, Jungar territory, southern, which was both desert and then oasis. Um, these two zones now are, are the Qing conquered them both, and eventually, later, they become known as, uh, as, as Xinjiang. So um, in historically, in the literature that I'm reading, this would be called Altashaher, or more commonly, actually, Yetashaher, the seven cities. Um, uh, but this zone over here, So it's a massive territory, uh, and it, the conquests were extraordinarily expensive. Um, the uh, Qing campaigns cost the treasury some 23 million tile, uh, an amount of silver equal roughly 900 tons of silver to run these campaigns. The Qianlong Emperor was victorious, uh, and now he has a decision to make. He has to govern this massive territory. The conquests nearly doubled the size of his empire in terms of its territory. But if you think about it in US terms, you're talking about Wyoming and Montana times 10, right? I mean, it's massive amount of territory. How do you govern this? Well, you have two options, as, as rulers have. You have the carrot and the stick. The stick would be to establish garrisons across this enormous territory. That's going to be expensive, and it's going to be a sustained drain on his treasury. The carrot is to offer incentives to make the conquered people want to be a part of the Qing emperor, empire. Uh, he chose the, the carrot, as it was going to be substantially cheaper. And he established what the, is known as the Xixiang, the silver stipend. Jim Millward at Georgetown has written on, on this subject uh, quite a bit. Uh, the Xixiang, surplus revenue taken from more prosperous zones of the, the Qing Empire, especially those um, southern territories and then off on the eastern seaboard. Silver taken from areas where there was a surplus and injected into Xinjiang, into that economy. For a hundred years, silver is being moved into Xinjiang. Europeans are sailing around the Indian Ocean, coming into the Chinese port cities, spending silver, buying stuff, Silver is moving from those cities into Xinjiang. Um, there is also, at the same time as you see this, as, as the Xixiang is in place, um, you see a series of efforts to encourage economic development in the region. Kwangming um, uh, Kim uh, is a uh, young scholar at um, uh, University of Colorado Denver. He has a book on this, came out with Stanford uh, just a couple of years ago. There's some issues with the book, but his overall arguments uh, remains which is these lucrative contracts that the Qing are signing with local Turkic Muslim nobility in, again, Altashaher, Yetashaher, uh, for jade, agricultural products, for other local goods. These are designed to promote economic development and to secure loyalties. These financial incentives worked. They secured the loyalty of the local Turkic Muslim elite. So long as they were connected, these groups of people were happy to be a part of the Qing Empire. Um, how we'll come back to what happens when they don't in, in, in just a little bit. Um, how does that affect Hokan? Well, in the 18th century, the Qing fiscal policy linked uh, Xinjiang with Hokan and the eastern seaboard and beyond. 
1759, Irdana Bey, um, one of the Shah Rukh's rulers, established an official relationship with the Qin. Uh, not a subordinate relationship, but an official one. He wasn't alone, but he was the most effective. Um, he used it for legitimacy, and he also used it for resources. Let's talk about the resources. Three different ways that resources came into Fulkan. One is, and this is the one that always gets written about, is the official gift exchange. Embassies going back and forth, and everybody's writing about what was in what the embassies sent in, in terms of their gifts. Oh, they gave us a beautiful falcon. They gave us vultures gold. Isn't that nice? Let's give them a better set of gifts in return. So this is, when we look at the historical scholarship on the subject, this is the stuff that's always in the rec historical record. It's the stuff that historians have focused their attention on. All right, that's one. That's nice, but it's the least interesting. Number two, every embassy that was permitted to travel all the way over to Beijing from Fulkan included the rights of free transport and free trade. They could take advantage of the state infrastructure for, for transportation all the way over to Beijing, places to stay, and it was tax-free trade. So Irdana Bey and his successors would send armies of merchants to go buy Chinese merchandise and then come back, and he could use that, resources from that, to extend his patronage network across the valley. That's more interesting, right? So you've got lots of resources coming in, and we have a handful of, of records that reference the size of these, you know, caravans of 88 camels bringing, or, or, or carts bringing um, uh, merchandise from China into the Fargana Valley, where it's gonna be sold northward to Russian markets or southward into India, etc. That's important, but that, is, that pales in comparison to the third, which is that Irdana Bay was able to secure permission for thousands of Kokandi merchants to establish their own commercial network across Xinjiang, these Andijani merchants. These guys are um, uh, able to exploit the Qing intensification of, of Xinjiang markets, and they're, they're embedded. Not only were they embedded, Hokan was actually able to um, secure permission to tax them in Qing territories. So they're Hokandi merchants working in Qing territories. They're moving Qing merchandise westward into Hokandi markets, and they're paying tax revenue to the state. Now we start to see how this, these, these interstices, these, these, these um, connections of, of the tendons of globalization are making their way across the Qing Empire and into the Fargana Valley. Right? You can start to actually get a sense of that now. Um, for a century, these connections were an engine for Hokandi development. So long as the Qing fiscal policies in Altashir benefited Hokand, everything was good. The problems emerged when the Qing changed policies, as they did a couple times, and these are great. Um, so Hokand, this relatively small state when compared to the massive Qing Empire, launched several absolutely abysmally failed invasions of the Qing Empire. These are worthy of Mel Brooks' blazing saddles type <laughs> failures. These are awful. Um, six, 7,000 soldiers make their way across the mountain passes and they invade Kashgar. They kill a bunch of Chinese soldiers. The, there were a series of them. The um, most successful was that the Hokandis were able to hold Kashgar itself for about nine months. Other than that, I mean, there were campaigns where the armies came in and they didn't have a single victory. 
But every time Ho Khan did it, the Qing had to put forward a defense. The Qing had to marshal substantial resources coming out of the eastern part of the empire, send them all the way off into Xinjiang. Every one of these was extraordinarily expensive. It was cheaper for the Qing just to reinstate the financial <laughs> incentives. Uh, and so they did. Over and over again, we find that Ho Khan was able uh, to, to force the Qing to reinstitute these, these incentives. So that, rev that revenue that Ho Khan is able to extract is an exceptional, exceptionally valuable revenue stream for about a century. So how does that change things in the Fargana Valley? Um, there are a, a, a series of legacies. One is um, economic vitality was used to promote growth and uh, maintain political stability in the valley itself. Um, in terms of demographics, we see um, the Fargana Valley attracting a series of migrant populations. Some from push factors elsewhere. For example, I mentioned um, de or depopulation in Samarkand. Where did these Samarkandis go? Many went into the Fargana Valley. Where are they now? Still there, unless they've gone to college and taught French and moved on somewhere else. Right, That's they, they became a part of that landscape in, uh, in, in the Fargana Valley. Others are pull factors. We get Kohistanis coming from the Pamirs, uh, Turks from Altashir, um, and other groups as well. So the population of the valley, as we move through the second half of the 18th century into the 19th century, becomes larger. Uh, it ex the number of settlements expands in the number, but also in the size of these settlements. We also see new models of legit political legitimacy that are based more on um, uh, religion than on lineage. So the Chinggisid legacy is, is gone at this point. Um, the Hokantans never claimed to be Chinggisid. Right? That wasn't a part of their bid for legitimacy. Um, we see resources used to build hundreds of small mosques, literally hundreds of small mosques across the Fargana Valley, and a number of really truly grand ones. This one, the Madali Khan Medjeset, no longer exists, but it's one of a number of real monumental um, uh, Islamic examples of Islamic architecture that's being uh, developed in the Fargana Valley. Second, resources are used to enhance Hokan's larger um, and much more modern military. The growth in Hokan's military began during the reign of Narbudabe, again, toward the end of the 18th century. Uh, as we, and at, in that period, 1770 to 1799, we see the military go from the same three to 4,000 up to about 20,000 by the end of the 18th century. Um, then we see a period of reforms under Narbudabe's son and successor, Alim Zalim, Alim the Tyrant. Uh, uh, he earned it. Uh, he reformed the military to centralize the state, trying to do so along the lines of the Ottomans. Um, he was the first of the Sharuchids to claim the title of Khan. Um, and he built a standing military of Tajik infantry. Right? This is beautiful. The, the Khalcha Corps. Khalcha. Um, uh, these Tajiks from up in the mountains. Tajiks are, I mean, you know, they're, they're known as farmers. They're not known as you know, Uzbek soldiers, right? But here, he says, no, no, no. These guys, we're going to pull them from Kuhistan. We're pulling them in from the, fr they're going to be completely reliant on him, on the state. And he arms them with state-of-the-art gunpowder weaponry and trains them. And they prove to be extraordinarily effective. And I've got some images of, um, uh, the gunpowder weapons from, uh, uh, from the Tongue uh, here. Uh, I like this new silicon gun. Silicon is the same as flintlock. Um, uh, the chakmok. 
these folks were kind of, you know. Um, so we're starting to see flintlock weapons make their way into the Fargana Valley in this period. Um, other other weapons uh, that were also used um, with great effect. Uh, this is actually a Chinese cannon that apparently was taken during one of, from the Kokandis took it during one of their, their uh, campaigns against Kashgar and then brought it back across the mountains. The, um, uh, the inscription here is an undefeatable divine cannon uh, that they apparently defeated. So <laughs> this is effective. All right, so this, again, the resources are bankrolling this Kokandi military expansion, which generates territorial expansion. Uh, Hokan took Tashkent in 1807 and then began a process of expansion into the steppe. Um, this is, let me emphasize, the first time in six centuries that a, cent a sedentary Central Asian state was able to extend its control northward into the steppe. Hadn't happened since before Chinggis Khan. By 1840, Madali Khan had command over 100,000 soldiers. 1799, up to 20,000. 40 years later, this is that period of efflorescence, an army of 100,000. Kokan had expanded now to a quarter of a million square miles. In four decades, that's a, 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 an increase by a factor of 30. 30 times larger than it was in 1799. Both south into the Wakan, down as far as Wakan and north, um, all the way up toward um, uh, Lake Baltash. It was larger than the Bukharan Khanate ever was. Kokandis even annexed Tashkurgan, or um, Sarikol, uh, off in Chinese Turkestan, um, uh, far to the south in, in Qing territory. They took it from the Qing. And to give some insight into why Kokand would want to do so, uh, this city, in its annual taxes, produced one ton of saltpeter. Saltpeter plus sulfur plus charcoal equals gunpowder. So Kokand was just they were highly aware of, uh, of, of what they were doing. And this explains why the Bukharan emirs became very, very nervous right around 1840. Another feature I want to highlight is um, the dramatic expansion of irrigation networks. The migration into the valley was a defining feature from early on. Lots of peoples coming in. Sarts, Kyrgyz, Kipchaks, people from Altishtahir, uh, and, and others. For a century, beginning around 1770, Kokand began to put a substantial amount of effort into expanding irrigation networks in the Fergana Valley. The Andijan Sai and the Uchkurgan Arik were put in place under Narbuda Bay, end of the 18th century. All right, so here we've got Andijan Sai. Um, and then uh, the Uchkuhan Arik also off in the east. Now, Yangi Arik near Namangan. All right, so uh, where was Namangan? Right up here. All right, so Namangan, that area right there, is built under Alim Khan. That transforms that village into a major city in the region. The movement, that the establishment of that irrigation network we see that area become densely populated from the beginning of the 19th century as peoples were migrating in. The Shahrakhan Sai under Umar Khan to the southeast was put in place uh, to essentially appease Kyrgyz forces <coughs> that had settled in that region. Then in later years, we get the Khan Arik, the Musulman Kul Arik, and the Uluq Nahr, three other major um, irrigation networks. Now each of these 
extends the amount of irrigation agriculture by about two and a half to three percent, each one, for th in the valley. All of them together, though, bring about 27% of the valley under the plow, on top of that which was already irrigated. It's an additional 600,000 hectares. This increases revenue, it sustains a denser population, and it produces, we see the, far the farmers in the Fargana Valley start to produce cash crops for export, principally going northward into Russian markets. This transforms Babur's wilderness wonderland into a major uh, agricultural zone. And it's this process that, mean, that, that leads the, the valley to be home to 1.5 million people. Now the Khanate itself was home to about 5 million, including the steppe populations. But this is, I mean, just within the valley itself, many more than Bukhara. And the total population of Khokhan is five times that of what were the people who were living over to the east in Altashehe. So I do, in the, in the study, I dive a little bit into the literature on the hydraulic state, um, you know, Karl Wittfogel's um, oriental despotism. But I argue that the study, I mean, the, the evidence that I have actually is it's, support, it's less supportive of Wittfogel, more supportive of Breifogel, my <laughs> friend and colleague Nick Breifogel right here, who um, ran into when we were walking dogs the other day. So that's my dog <laughs> working right there, right? And Nick's dog, Oku, is much larger. So um, it's not hydraulic despotism. Water gives the state influence, not control. Kokan used water to incentivize loyalty and lubricate, lubricate pardon the pun, friction among these different groups, but the people themselves retained the agency. Uh, and the evidence of that is the, essentially the revolt that unfolded at, um, uh, in 1842 that led to Madali Khan's collapse uh, at his absolute peak of power, right? He was never more powerful than he was in 1842, yet the people found him and his debauchery to be so distasteful that they, they overthrew him and he didn't have the power to, to control them. The army itself did enough. So um, the final point then is um, uh, I wanna point to two destabilizing factors that undermined Shah Rukh's authority and led to the fall, the collapse of Kokan. Both of these happened in 1853, from the east. It's the end of the Shishiang. The Taiping rebellions uh, caused fiscal crisis across the Qing Empire, and um, uh, that removed the incentives for loyalty, undermined the economy of, uh, of, of Alta Shaher, and for Khokhan to cut off that revenue stream. To the north, far more serious, was the Russian conquest of the steppe fortresses, uh, beginning with Ak Masjid in 1853 get a little bleep with the Crimean War, 53 to 56, and then Russia is back at it. Uh, and we see a whole series of Russian movements farther south. Now here, Alexander Morrison is doing the, the most recent work in, in, in this area, as he's arguing, and I think rightly so, that the Russians are looking for a stable frontier, a place that they can stop. And they're not finding one. They're not finding a place where they can actually establish and maintain and sustain a garrison. Right? It's not gonna happen. They, and they keep moving uh, farther and farther to the south. Now the Russian sources from this period describe instability, chaos, and despotic rulers on the other side. Right? That's how they identify Kokan. And that's used to justify Russian expansion. The irony is that the Russian forces themselves were the most destabilizing factor beyond their own frontier. The Russian colonial presence was very different from that of the Qing. The Qing had ruled from afar, through locals. The Russians were very present and very aggressive. 
the Qing injected money into the local economy. The Russians were chasing revenue streams. This led to scarcity of resources and rising ethnic tensions, and then we get into all the details associated with that. In his third reign, the final really serious ruler of Khokan, Kuriyar Khan, applied all of the traditional techniques. He brought every trick out of the book to try and, and stabilize his, his khanate. Um, he tried to restore balance among all the various ethnic groups, right? taking peoples that he had been fighting with and elevating them and diverting resources to them. He excavated the Uluh Nahar, the Grand um, Canal, really, on the river, but you know, the, the Grand Canal to try and ease ethnic tensions. He promoted economic recovery through trade with Russia. Uh, all these techniques had worked for more than a century, but the ethnic conflict was too severe. The, ultimately, the only way to unite these various groups was an anti-Russian platform. And so um, uh, rebellion spread, and von Kaufmann launched ordered Major General Mikhail Skopyelov to go uh, invade the Fargana Valley again. Uh, and he did so, and the, the, the Tsar uh, officially extinguished Khokhand on February 2nd of 1876. Skopyelov was made the first military governor of the Fargana Oblast. Uh, and then soon thereafter, he was sent off to go to the uh, Russian-Turkish War. All right. Couple conclusions. One, with this book, um, for the field, we've got the first English language history of the Khanate of Khokhand. Yay, I won. Yeah. <laughs> um, a book that decenters the standard historical narrative away from Bukhara. Uh, it's also, like I said, as I said, a counterpoint to Russian and Qing imperial narratives. Uh, their, their, their own narratives of their um, uh, history of expansion into the region. So I'm in conversation now with those narratives rather than just have this kind of two-dimensional figure of Central Asia that's acting in response to, to, to imperial motives, but doesn't have its own agency. It also, I dearly hope, uh, creates a scaffolding for new work to be done in the region's history. This isn't the last word on the history of Kokan. There's a lot more work to be done, and I try and point future generations of scholars toward what I think will be um, worthwhile avenues to pursue. Second, we've got an analysis of how globalizing patter patterns help to shape uh, Central Asian history and lead to the colonial era. It's a key feature of Central Asian history. Many of the key features of Central Asian history that are attributed to the Russian period, we find actually are rooted in the previous period. It was not a tabula rasa, right? There were things that were already happening there. On a related note, it's a very interesting case study, I think, in state formation on the frontier of empire in the 18th and 19th centuries. Right? Here's a Central Asian case study, but we can contrast that. We can put that in conversation with work on the Sokoto Caliphate in Nigeria, the Ashante in Ghana, the Zulu Kingdom in South Africa, the Sikhs in the Punjab, Burma, Vietnam, and of course, Siam. And so this, I hope, helps to put Central Asia on the global stage. Finally, um, I note that historical work is directly relevant to contemporary politics and contemporary society. So work in the 18th and 19th century, it is relevant in the 21st century. History is easily weaponized. It's true in Central Asia, it's true in Russia, it's true in China, true in India, true in Texas. Those of us who are American know the Texas textbook, right? that's supposed to be a joke, sorry. 
It's true in the United States as well. History is weaponized. It's not funny if you have to explain it, right? Um, history gets twisted, molded, and deployed to serve ideological agendas. This can lead to, often leads to repression, and occasionally leads to devastation. It's our responsibility as historians to combat that through scholarship and to broadcast our conclusions. It's simple enough to say it, but there's really nothing simple about it. It takes years of training, including the kind of training that you've been doing here over the last uh, number of weeks. Skill takes vision, dedication, and it takes resources. Uh, in Central Asia and at home, we have to learn from the past to prepare for our futures. And so with that, I will say thank you.